Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with Dr. Asha Sajahan, board-certified family physician, an assistant professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Biomedical Studies at Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine. She is very active in health advocacy around misinformation in public health, particularly vaccine misinformation. In addition, she's a podcast host for the award-winning Beaumont House Call, an official blogger for Psychology Today. And with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Sajahan. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Many of the advocacies that you lead and in many ways have become a leader around center on vaccine misinformation. Can you tell us what drove you and what is your passion behind this issue? Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. Before the pandemic hit, I had actually done a, a, a fellowship graduate program um, at Harvard called the Media and Medicine. And during that course, I learned a lot about media manipulation and about misinformation. And I was sort of passively consuming the information, to be honest. I was like, oh, this is so interesting, but kind of just like, you know, swept it somewhere in my brain. Uh, and then the pandemic hit. And I was working on the front lines, working uh, on the inpatient unit of the COVID units, working nights, weekends, uh, doing homeless outreach on the streets uh, during the day. And literally my life was consumed uh, with COVID-19 as most of us were. Um, But what I noticed mostly was that the things, the, the information that the patients had were just outrageous. And the questions that the patients had seemed not based on a lot of science. So it was really interesting because I felt like at that point, it was almost like a mission to go out there and really just start educating people on what is known about COVID-19, how do we protect ourselves? And then it just amplified more when the vaccine became available to continue to talk about um, the science behind the vaccine. Because what we were seeing is that, you know, eight out of 10 Americans search for medical information online. And about 73% of Americans go on the internet for their information. And when you have unvetted sources giving information, patients are victim to it. We all are victim to it. So I felt like as being a trusted provider, the Kaiser Family Foundation did a research study that showed that physicians and particularly primary care physicians were the most trusted source of medical information. So I sort of took it upon myself that I really need to get involved in trying to battle misinformation, particularly medical misinformation, so that patients can live happy and healthier lives. No, certainly. I think the value of trust is paramount in the primary care field. So I'm very happy and glad that you're bringing that to the forefront. But one thing in particular I found very interesting is you mentioned vaccine misinformation got worse over the course of the pandemic, particularly after the vaccines were made available. Can you help us understand why you felt the longer we were into the pandemic, the more the misinformation spread? It would seem it would be the other way around. Yeah, no, I think the thing is, is that, you know, we're kind of in an infodemic in the sense that there is information everywhere. And I feel like as the pandemic continued and as more things became available, there's more information, more ways that of information being manipulated. So initially there were no vaccines. So the talk was about COVID-19 and the virus itself and the spread itself. And then once you started having different treatment protocols and vaccinations as a way of 
um, treating or preventing the illness, more and more misinformation emerged. So I think that the reason why more and more misinformation is is occurring is that whenever there is more information available, there's always going to be more misinformation and, and even disinformation or even malinformation available. That's a really interesting point you mentioned. And I think it's counterintuitive for many people who are not at the public health level as you are. For many, it would seem that uncertainty would lead to misinformation. And the more we know, the less we would be misinformed by. But in reality, you're saying the more information available, the more misinformation is disseminated. Can you provide an example of that? Yeah, no. So for example, in the very beginning, um, when nobody knew what was going on with COVID-19, you had um, the recommendations started coming out to you know, mask, social distance, wash your hands. And I felt like initially people were like, okay, that's what we need to do, then let's do it. But then as time went on, more information came out in terms of how, what does social distance mean? Like, how far do you stand? What kind of mask do you have to have? Um, what is hand washing? Is it how long do you hand wash for? And then all these little intricacies and nuances started coming up with the more information that was available. So then I feel like then people get confused and then people stop following uh, the public health recommendations because they say, well, it doesn't make any sense. Like, should I stay inside and distance from someone or is it okay if we're outside? And I feel like when there's more confusion around the information, the less likely people are to be able to follow through with the instructions. I mean, you think about something just regular, like a doctor-patient relationship. And the, if you give a patient a medication and you tell them to take it daily, let's say for high blood pressure, um, and they take that medication, and then all of a sudden they have another problem like diabetes, and then you ask them to do diet, exercise, and take another medication, there's more likely to have more confusion. So I, I feel like it, it happens with the more information that's out there, the more opportunity for manipulation of the information. And then also we're in a world of social media. So social media has a lot of influence on the, ki the kinds of information that we digest. It's not just a straightforward, like you're in the office with your, with your patient and you're talking bi-directionally and having a conversation and presenting information and giving them the same information over and over again. When the patient is now home, they're in a place where they're getting information from the news, they're getting information from their friends and family, and then they're getting information from the internet and various sources on the internet from you know Twitter and um, Facebook and Instagram. So now it's just this overload of information, which I think is what leads to the confusion. That's interesting you talk about the information overload and the role social media plays, but you also sense some benefits of social media as you have a strong following and a strong presence on different social media platforms. Can you help us understand what are the pros and cons of physicians on social media and how that has made you a more effective communicator? Yeah, so being a family physician, so I work in the Department of Family and Community Medicine, I always believe that health is outside the walls of uh, the hospital and outside the walls of the clinic. Uh, health is out in the community and health is where your patients are. And the majority of the time your, your patients don't live in the clinic or the hospital, they live at home. Um, right. And so in the past, the, the way that patients would interface with their physicians would be one-on-one -on -one in the clinical setting. Well, as time has gone on now, it, it's even before the pandemic, I was one of those physicians that were out in the community. I would be 
um, at local health centers or at fitness centers or at going at the grocery stores or in walks, like wherever my patients were, I would try to be there to help provide some um, public health information. Wow. Well, when the pandemic hit, I think what happened was that everyone was at home more so than before. And people were no longer gathering even in you know churches and community centers and grocery stores. Everyone was at home. And the only way they could get their information was via media, whether that was television news or internet. And so I've always been a strong advocate that you need to be where your patients are and our patients were online. And so I found that the only way that I could reach multiple patients was not doing a town hall in person somewhere that wasn't even allowed, right? Um, but was to be able to host a Facebook live. Mm. Um, where people could interface and ask questions. It's basically the same thing that we used to do in person in the community, but because of the fact that we were no longer able to, um, it was moved to an online space. But the interesting thing was you realize, so for example, I was involved in this project called Project Samvedna that did um, town halls and provided medical information on COVID-19 and vaccinations to New Delhi, India. So it was a group of about 100 and 150 doctors or so from the US, UK, Canada, Australia, and India together um, coming on an online platform. And I would host these talks and call an expert and we'd have live talks and people couldn't ask questions. Well, one 20 minute Facebook live would have you know over 3000 views. Wow. And so this is suddenly like a new way of reaching people because if you're in a clinic setting, it's one-on-one. Uh, if you're in a community setting, it might be maybe 20, 25, maybe 100 people. But now it's like with from the comfort of your home, you can reach thousands of people. And so I think it, it's become a much more powerful public health tool. But as with all tools, it has to be used responsibly. I agree. And it's interesting you talk about scalability, because I can see both pros and cons with that. You know, there's a famous saying, the medium is the message, whether that's in person, online, verbal, or written. Are there any downsides to that access of scale that you see on social media that perhaps an in-person with a lower turnout may be more effective? Yeah, absolutely. I think the difference is, is that in real life, there is usually more bi-directional conversation. If mm. you say something, um, you can clarify it. If someone asks a question live, you can clarify it. Where if it's on social media, the difference is, is if you're doing a Facebook Live and the person is on live, then yeah, they can ask you the question and um, ask for clarification. But if they're watching it later on, there may be some misinterpretation. In addition to that, the scalability, that's the biggest issue is for example, now with a click of a button, you can forward something to many, many people. Right. So if it is false information that someone is consuming or um, something that may be misleading and it gets forwarded, let's say on a WhatsApp app or forwarded on some of the social media platforms, it suddenly reaches so many more people than if you're in a community setting and someone says something inaccurate, you, it's a limited audience. So I think it's, it's a powerful tool in both ways. One, with the click of a button, you can spread all sorts of misinformation, but also with the click of a button, you can also spread correct information. So it's kind of a two sides of, of a coin. 
Certainly. And I don't think that there's many people outside of you who have done as effective job in getting proper information out there. Your advocacy and your work during the pandemic and even before, what nuances or insights have they given you about human nature, about communication and trust that you may see as a physician and maybe just as a human being? Yeah, I think what I've realized and when people make medical decisions, it's not really completely only logic-based. Mm. You know what I mean, it is more about emotions. It's more about um, sort of like your psychological factors, things like confirmation bias or social motivators or values, community, culture. There's so many different things that play into decision-making and also plays into trust building. And I think the biggest issue with misinformation that uh, is one of the reasons why we um, created that toolkit for providers is that providers are trained in a very scientific manner. So you feel like if you present, if you give the information to somebody that that should be enough for them to make a decision, right? So it's like, hey, this treats diabetes, take it, <laughs> um, right? And then yeah. you don't, seem to, you forget about all the other things like, well, maybe the patient can't afford the medication or maybe um, natural remedies are better for um, the patient in terms of their cultural values. Maybe there's mistrust based on what's happened in the past with certain racial or ethnic groups. Um, there's a lot of things that are motivating decisions. And even now, most recently, I think even political affiliations are starting to motivate decision-making when it comes to, to health and health behaviors. So I think that it has really opened my eyes to how important the psychology of understanding messaging or understanding about how to have a compassionate, empathetic conversation that employs curiosity and helps build um, resource challenges and really starts having a more bi-directional way of conversating. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Medicine is an experience, sometimes logical, sometimes illogical. If we were to place what you had just mentioned in the framing of psychology, whether that's behavioral economics or the study of irrationality, within the context of vaccine hesitancy, what sort of insights has your advocacy brought about? Yeah, I think what I've learned is that people really need to self-express. Mm. So people, if you ask, why are you not taking the vaccine as opposed to tell me your concerns, it's a, you get a different answer, right? right? So if you ask questions in a way that patients and people become defensive, you don't get anywhere. So really opening up to allow self-expression is really important. And then really identifying what matters to that patient. What matters to that patient? Is it their culture? Is it their in-group, for example, like are they pregnant and they're worried about their child? Is it their moral values? Is it their political affiliation? You know, what is it that matters to them the most? And then when you think about things like treatment plans, is it, is it what's driving their thought process? Is it influence of media? Is it fear? Is it misunderstanding? So there's a lot to really understand. And so when you have these conversations, you have to really dig and get to the root of it. 
And then once you get to the root of what really matters to the patient, then you can start connecting and confirming what is true and what is false and what aligns with their values. And then from there, you can collaborate on going further with a recommendation and a treatment plan that both parties feel comfortable with. That's very interesting and very astute. And I almost in a way see messaging as you would diagnose certain symptoms to lead to a condition and a treatment plan, which is very interesting when you phrase it that way, because they would imply that there is no one effective strategy. Rather, it's a form of thinking. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, that's why it's like no conversation is the same, right? Mm-hmm. Because no person is the same. And so the dy- dynamic of every conversation will be different. And just like with every case of different cases that you have, you have to sort of diagnose, like you mentioned, you have to get to the root of it. You have to get to the bottom of it, find out the why, what's causing it. And it's the same when it comes to having conversations and delivering medical information for people to make empowered decisions about their health. Why do you feel that we continue in the healthcare world and for those in health policy advocating to the public about one effective vaccine hesitancy strategy or one form of messaging? Why do we try to simplify it? I think because the world is so complex that everyone is looking for simple answers. Mm -hmm. And um, simplicity often wins, right? If you can water something down and make it digestible to the average person, it's more likely to be adopted. And so I think that's why a lot of times there's a lot of these methods that people come up with, like, um, like with our, this is our shot campaign. We have the three, five, three methodology of having a conversation with the uh, misinformation toolkit. It's the three C's it's ways to help people remember so that they can deliver the information in a simple manner, because oftentimes health information is very complex and it's very easy for scientists and researchers and healthcare providers to get in the weeds and use terms that people don't understand. And if you don't understand, you're not going to be able to move forward in making a decision. I think that's a very important point because it is important to have information that's digestible for a majority of the listening audience, whether that's a patient population or the public in general. You have been directly involved with This Is Our Shot and Misinfo RX, the online toolkit to help prevent misinformation. So in many ways, you are one of the physician leaders creating these protocols. So when you're in the process of identifying certain protocols or mnemonics that help the audience understand vaccine misinformation, what goes through your mind as you're creating these, for lack of a better term, simplified protocols? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing that you have to do when you're when you are creating these types of things is doing many, many town halls, Mm -hmm. Um, meaning getting feedback, uh, feedback, feedback, feedback. So for example, in the um, Misinfo RX, we held several town halls with physicians and healthcare providers from across the country, from different disciplines to kind of get feedback on, how do you feel about this? Is this digestible? Does this work? Do you feel like you, that you would use this? So it's like, you can't just create something out of nowhere and hope people use it based on the research and the science, right? 
you have to make sure it's usable with any kind of design thinking model or any kind of invention or any kind of thing that is made. If you don't have it geared to, for the user and if the user doesn't give you feedback, you can't create it. So I think we've done a lot of that. And also the same with um, the general public, like what messaging strategies seem to work um, by trying them out and looking at what the research says in terms of people that are doing surveys on uh, behavior and what is it that makes people um, come to a decision. And so I think really getting the feedback of the public or whoever the user is for the information you're trying to to put forward, whether it's a healthcare provider audience or it is the general public, it's just so important to get that feedback from, from the, the person that would be consuming the, the product. I think feedback is critical. And as you'd mentioned, part of that conversation, that byway communication that makes a physician an effective communicator and helps to alleviate vaccine misinformation. One counter to that and almost playing devil advocate, is that it may predispose to a sort of 80-20 Pareto's rule, where you're trying to address the masses, but kind of leaving the fringes out, predisposing to extremist type beliefs. Have you noticed mm -hmm. that sort of tendency when you try to centralize the message? Or do you feel that that's something that's inevitable? No, I think especially if you're talking about something like, um, for example, vaccine conversations, you want to really talk to the movable middle. Mm. You don't want to be um, talking to the people that are extremists on either end. And the reason why is the extremists at either end are not really ready psychologically to make a change in their belief or their behavior. If you're an anti-vaxxer and you've been an anti-vaxxer your entire life um, and you have never taken a vaccine and neither has any of your family members, the amount of effort and time of having a conversation with someone like myself, it, it seems futile. Whereas there are people who maybe have questions and are unsure, that unsure group of people are the people that are usually targeted and the reason why is because they are seeking more information to make a decision. Those kind, even like when you look at the um, political extreme, like in elections, for example, people tend to um, focus on the people in the middle because they know that their the conservatives will vote conservative and the liberal will vote liberal, right? So I think um, it's not so much trying to leave out the people who are on the extremes of the spectrum. It's more so where is the most effort needed and where will the most effort have the biggest impact? And so that is why I think most of the messaging has been targeting that movable middle. That's interesting. That movable middle is quite in flux. And as I'm sure you can attest to, in flux over the course of the pandemic. Can you explain some of the findings that you've identified either at the beginning, middle, or current iteration of the pandemic that made you realize, wow, this movable middle is a lot more flux than people may think. Yeah, I think in the very beginning, people had, the, everyone had questions about the vaccine or about COVID-19 because there was not a lot of information out there. And then as time goes on, the people that had their questions answered and felt comfortable, they went ahead and got vaccinated, right? But as, it, as you see, I'm 
still doing advocacy on yeah. um, vaccines and still doing advocacy on COVID-19 because as time goes on, that movable middle starts, it starts shrinking. I, I wish I could show you. I'm like demonstrating mm. with my hands here. It's like <laughs> shrinking, but then from the extreme sides, it also starts expanding in the sense of there are people who maybe, for example, I had a patient who was 100% told me in the very beginning, she was not going to get a vaccine and there was nothing I could do to convince her. And I said, that's fine. That's your decision. No problem. And now about six months, seven months later, she came into the office and said, you know, doc, I just want to let you know, I, I did go ahead and get my vaccine. Wow. So, you know, people can change their mind. It takes a lot of time. Um, so it's, it's just interesting to see that. I think initially it's like everyone who wants it is trying to get their questions answered. And then you'll see the lull. There was a huge spike where people couldn't even get vaccines, right? People were in line and saying like, when is it my turn? And now it's available pretty much to everyone five and older. And, you know, a lot of the sites are pretty empty and people are not rushing to get their vaccine as before. But I think, I just think it takes time. It takes people time to decide. Some may never, some may, but in that, that movable middle that I keep talking about, it kind of mm -hmm. changes over time, right? Like yeah. in terms of the people on either extreme. Is this change with the movable middle kind of continuing that theme? Is this change gradual or continuous or have you identified discrete events that lead to sudden changes in the characteristics of this movable middle? As you mentioned, a more narrow inflection point, a longer tail. Are there discrete events that you've noticed that created changing in the characteristics of this movable middle? Yeah, I think it depends. So uh, sometimes yes, and sometimes no. So when there were a lot of um, the mandates, uh, for example, like for different companies that mm -hmm. they said you have to be vaccinated to come back to work, I saw a lot of people go ahead and get vaccinated. Actually, the majority actually did. Wow. Um, you hear about in the news that people were upset and people left their job. And but if you look at even in the in the healthcare sector of how many people went ahead and got vaccinated versus how many people actually left. It, the majority is people went ahead and got vaccinated. And I know um, anecdotally from my patients saying, oh, it's, it's mandated at my job, so I have to get it now. So that is something that might've motivated people in terms of they were kind of putting it off and then they felt like, well, I have to do it now, otherwise I'll lose my job, right? Mm -hmm. um, other things such as Omicron, for example, is is something that I think is pushing a lot of people now to get boosted. Um, I have a physician friend who had gotten both of his doses of the Pfizer biotech vaccine, and he was sort of putting off getting his booster. And when I asked him why he was like, ah, I, I think I have antibodies and I, I'm just busy and I don't want to feel down for a couple of days. And he just kind of put it off. And then it, he ended up contracting COVID-19 and got pretty sick. And, um, you know, thankfully he recovered, but now he's like, I, I want to get my booster because I am afraid that I contracted most likely Delta and I want the protection of being able to protect against Omicron. So I think there's always different things that change people's minds and different incidences that occur that change people's minds. Um, when it, it, the vaccines became approved, you know, some people change their minds. So there are different events that occur, whether it be um, uh, in terms of 
mandates or political um, decisions versus more scientific knowledge that comes out. Uh, I think there are different events that changes people's minds. And then personal events. I know mm-hmm. people who were very um, anti-vaccination who ended up entire families getting contracting COVID-19 and unfortunately one family member passed away. And then the rest of the family is now wanting to get vaccinated. So different events trigger different behaviors and every, every trigger is different, I guess. That's interesting. So many people talk about lessons learned from the pandemic and how they can apply it to healthcare going forward. And I think it's a lot more complex than a simple A to B transition. For you, what do you feel are the most applicable principles, whether it was a direct experience or something you learned at a broad level advocacy that you think can be most translatable to healthcare going forward? I think healthcare really needs to be modernized and really needs to get in with the times. So for example, pre-pandemic um, in, in my particular health system, video visits and telehealth was really not a thing. I mean, a few people had it here or there, but then you know, with a flip of, flip of a coin, um, when the pandemic hit, suddenly our entire health system was on telehealth, which has helped a lot of people. Likewise, I think uh, we need to really meet patients where they are and they're on the digital space. And I think many physicians and healthcare providers are afraid to get on into the digital space um, and have even been discouraged by their health systems uh, to get on the digital space just because they're concerned about liability and other things. But I think we really need to just, we really need to modernize uh, healthcare and really start um, being more convenient for patients, being more available to patients. And we can do that by, you know, really investing in different technologies. Yeah, and certainly uh, people like you, Dr. Sajahan, have been leading the way for how future trends in healthcare will manifest. Uh, And before we let you go, Can you please uh, let the audience know how they can get a hold of you? I know that you have your website, drsajaha.com. You have your initiatives. This is our shot.info and missinforx.com. How else can the audience get a hold of you if they either wanted to book you for an event or potentially even see you as a patient? Yeah, um, you can follow me online on Instagram at drashas and you can message me on there. Um, or even on LinkedIn under Asha Shahjahan or Twitter under Miss Asha S. So um, I'm, I'm on the digital space. You can find me um, or even uh, <laughs> through my website, um, Dr. Shahjahan, Dr. Asha Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Shahjahan, and look forward to following you for the rest of the year and in 2022 to go forward. So thank you for everything that you do. Thank you so much. And thanks for the opportunity to have this conversation. It was so great talking to you. Likewise. Take care. All right.